Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is season four, episode 14. So I apologize for the three-week hiatus between episodes. It wasn't something I was planning on doing, but I realized I needed a uh, mid-season break. So originally I intended to record an episode with my husband so we could get that uh, out last week, but we never got our act together to sit down and record and that kind of got pushed aside. So I am planning on having him on at some point before the end of the season. So how's the season going on in your part of the world? Here in Southeast Texas, we had a late freeze last week, which was early March, uh, that prompted a moving of plants and covering of a few that we left out. Um, but we'd already been experiencing spring-like temperatures for several weeks, so there was a lot of plants that were in bloom or putting on new growth. So some plants were unaffected by the two nights of 29 degrees, but a few were definitely nipped back a little bit. But we warmed up a few days later and nature decided to kind of just go ahead and give it a go and head towards straight for spring. So I released my last pipe vine swallowtail butterfly that had overwintered in chrysalis last Friday. And then I've noticed a ton more butterflies out. I saw a luna moth the other day. And a couple days ago, I had two monarchs visit my tropical milkweed that was in pots. And so most of them were rooting and cuttings. A couple were a little bit taller than that with some more leaves. And so now I have 40 eggs all over my, all over my milkweed. And these monarchs were probably coastal uh, residents who stay along the Gulf Coast. The main migration from Mexico has not really taken off quite yet, but it should be starting very soon. So it's not main migration monarchs, and I don't know what they were thinking. Even the native milkweed isn't even up yet. So they were just like, I've got to get rid of these eggs. Let's go. So this week's episode is with Samantha Eberhardt and Daniel Poole of Cassiopeia Farm in Austin, Texas. Their urban farm of 10 acres is working towards sustainability through regenerative agriculture practices, where they're preparing for the long term with crops of fruit trees, but currently in production as a cut flower farm. We talk about the duality of working on a farm and having a day job, the impacts of urban sprawl and how it affects their farm and building their cut flower farm and where they'd like to take the farm in terms of a business, but also in terms of ecosystem restoration. There are references to a lot of different people and resources throughout the conversation, and I have all of those in the show notes for the episode, which you can find at thegardenpathpodcast.com. It was great to see a perspective on farming through the eyes of a cut flower farm, something that I don't really come across too often when I visit farmer's markets, though I do know in some areas of the country... There's a lot more options for cut flowers for sale than in others. Also, a quick note, the podcast is now on Spotify. So that service finally produced a better submission form recently for podcasters. And it was finally able to get my podcast up on Spotify in like a matter of minutes, which is a change from like what iTunes does. It takes a couple days to get approved. So I listen to Spotify pretty frequently for my music, but I hadn't really quite delved into podcasts on there just because of the simple fact that for a long time, there weren't a lot of podcasts that I listened to on that platform. So that should be changing. If you listen to Spotify, might want to reconsider um, the podcast scene there. Check out the Garden Path podcast and hit subscribe over there. As always, you can sign up for the monthly newsletter at thegardenpathpodcast.com as well as download current and past episodes there. And you can email me at thegardenpathpodcast at gmail.com and find me on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast. So enjoy the episode. 
Yeah, so I'm so glad we have like an extra hour in the evening now with the sunlight. I'm sure you guys do too. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a little bit uh, of a surprise yesterday. We I wasn't paying any attention to, it, you know, the daylight savings time coming up and was just rudely surprised by our alarm. <laughs> Well, thank you guys for uh, coming on the podcast. Um, I've been looking at y'all's Instagram feed for, I don't know, six or eight months now. And um, I'm always looking for Texas people. And Yay. you guys are great to, to have on the podcast. So uh, maybe if you guys want to start by introducing yourselves, um, who you are, your farm, and maybe a little bit about the farm. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having us. It is quite an honor. <laughs> uh, I'm Samantha Eberhardt. And this is my husband, Daniel Poole. And our farm is Cassiopeia Farm, and we are in southeast Austin. We're just outside of city limits, but our address is technically Austin, but we're in Travis County. Okay. Okay. So kind of like towards the airport in that area? Yes. Very yeah, close. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, good. Now, are you guys from Austin originally, or how did you guys settle in that area? Uh, I'm from Mississippi originally, and uh, Sam is from a small town near Killeen called Florence. We both met at UT Austin going to college. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you're an engineer. And mm -hmm. what's your background, Sam? I went to school for biology and okay. I didn't do anything with it. I've worked in restaurants and in the food industry world for a little while. And then I left that to work on a flower farm in Maynard, Texas called Grassdale. And I worked there for a year before I transitioned full-time to the farm. Okay. So I guess, well, how did you, if you have those kind of backgrounds, how did you decide, <laughs> let's start a farm? And, and and I guess, I mean, you went to UT, so you obviously enjoyed Austin and you kind of decided mm -hmm. to settle there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think part, or the, the main reason that we got into this is because uh, of the book Omnivore's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really influential for both of us, and I think me especially. I, I kind of started to push us in this direction, and Sam was nice enough to, <laughs> to be dragged along. And, happily, uh, happily. And, you know, and, and she's she's really uh, pushing it a lot now, so it's mm -hmm. not like I, yeah, I didn't really drag her along. But, <laughs> I guess right. I, I, I was the, the uh, impetus for the whole thing. But um, we've always been uh, – really into the local food scene and local farms. And we've shopped at the farmer's markets and we've always had kind of patio gardens or indoor gardens or vegetable gardens when we could. So, you know, we've, we've always been into plants in general, but it wasn't until Dan kind of got his head, you know, he kind of got in his head that he wanted to have a farm. Did we start to go down this path? Yeah, so I read that book, and then I started reading about regenerative agriculture in general, permaculture, all of these different things. Got really interested in that and have kind of a, um, uh, an idealistic idea of having our own regenerative agriculture project here. Uh, some, some place where we can have a little piece of nature kind of close to town and maybe make a living from it. Right, right. So I guess what was in your mind uh, in the beginning when you were starting the farm? What was your, I mean, you're talking about regenerative agriculture. Were you thinking originally like having cows and sheep and that sort of thing? Or how did that really evolve? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was really up in the air, honestly. We, we weren't fixed on Austin originally, mm -hmm. uh, but 
we like Austin. It's a, it's a nice town to be in and uh, it's got a good food scene. So it, that's also a plus in terms of starting a farm nearby. There are people that are, um, th- that are supportive of local agriculture um, and, you know, willing to pay a slightly higher price for good quality local food. Whereas if you, you know, if you go to the Midwest somewhere, I think it, it, at least it was when we were in the planning stages, I guess I haven't looked into it much lately, but it seems like it's a bit harder to, to uh, run farms like this for, you know, you're competing with supermarket prices instead of uh, farmer's market prices. Right. Right. Um, as far as animals go, cause they are a big component of regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. We had originally talked about having maybe a couple of cows or some goats and we sort of dismissed you know, we kind of went through the typical list of animals that people tend to have, and we started sort of dismissing them. And uh, a recent dream of ours, I don't know how practical it'll be because we only have 10 acres, but if we could somehow acquire some of the land around us or another patch of land, we would really love to incorporate bison. And this is oh, yeah. a idea at all. But, you know, if we could somehow expand and have the regenerative farm of our dreams we would use bison and it would kind of fill some of my desires to do like prairie restoration work yet it would also fill some of the you know the niches that you know animals fulfill in the regenerative agriculture aspect so yeah and you definitely don't see bison uh in texas all that often i know of a couple places but definitely not not nobody raising them necessarily i'm sure i'm sure people there's do one I just, place i know of thunderheart bison the, well there's also rome ranch, rome ranch which is I, don't quote me on this but it's it's a younger couple and i want to say they were two of the three people who started that company epic they make those like oh okay okay and Bison and poultry, like uh, jerky bars. I believe they also started something <coughs> called Rome Ranch, and they're in uh, like Western Travis County or maybe Dripping Springs area, and they have some bison. But okay. that's about all I know. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Cows, cows are a lot more common than bison. Yeah, you don't definitely. See yeah, no, that would be an awesome niche. I mean, I would I would buy bison from you guys because yeah. <laughs> we see it at the store. We definitely buy it um, mm-hmm. when it's on sale because it's, you know, a much uh, leaner meat to eat. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's 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 different. So and it's cool, you know. <laughs> but right now that's just kind of brainstorming. We, yeah. Uh, we talked about goats, for example, and they, you know, they sure seem like a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And they- <laughs> it's a funny thing to say when you're talking about starting a farm, but you know, part of what I'm hoping we can do is have a bit of a hands-off set of perennial crops along with our more hands-on annual crops, like our flowers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay. You know, not that they're ever going to be zero labor, but right. Um, right. you know, a lot of this type of uh, permaculture design sort of leads in that direction towards creating designed ecosystems versus completely human managed uh, agricultural systems. Right. Okay. So I guess on that topic, maybe we could talk about, you have 10 acres. What did it look like when you guys moved in and what have you done to shape it into how it is today? Yeah. So the woman who owned this property before us, she called it city view ranch and she had some horses. I don't know how many do you Two, three, something like that. Two, three, two to five. And it wasn't super overgrazed, but the whole property was basically pasture for her horses. Yeah, it was pretty degraded. 
it was fairly degraded. A lot of the typical introduced uh, pasture grasses that folks use for horses and cows. Yeah, a lot of weedy species the first year yeah. we came here. There was just a, an infestation of uh, oriental mustard. Oh, yeah. We still have lots of mustard. Mustard <laughs> yeah. cabbage. Yeah, well. cabbage. <laughs> yeah. There is getting better over time, you know. We're, it is. You know, removing the Johnson grass, for mm-hmm. example, you know, in, invasives of various types. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But it's, it's Blackland Prairie. Um, it was overgrazed, kind of. It's a, it's a slight rolling topography. The, the whole property kind of slants in one direction. And so when we moved in, since Dan was interested in permaculture, he started to read about kind of working with that. And he used an excavator and he dug swales and berms kind of on the contour of the land. And that was kind of the first step in laying out our orchard. And I'm, I'm sure Dan can speak a little more about that. that. I mean, that pretty much covers it. The, the swales on contour with the slope of the land are intended to uh, slow down the movement of water across the, the surface of the land so that it soaks in a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a really commonly prescribed tool for permaculture systems. It seems like maybe it's not the best one here because of our dense clay soil. Yeah. So now it holds on to a lot of water, but it turns into a mud pit in the <laughs> So uh, we're trying some different things to to fight that. And I think I think eventually it will work out. Really, the, the big thing we need to do is just import a lot of organic matter. But right. uh, that that but that, that has really driven the design of of the orchard parts of the farm. That is to have the swales on contour, collecting water, and then. Uh, fruit and nut trees and, you know, perennial plants of various types arranged along the berms of those swales. So raised up out in, in a well-draining patch of soil above the, the waterlogged land. Right. So, you know, e- even if uh, we still have the drainage problems, these, these berms actually uh, raise the trees up to a, a safer place. Yeah, so that was kind of the first step, sort of outline the areas where we wanted to have the orchard. We, we, you know, moved the soil to create those berms, and then we planted some trees, and then we lost some trees. <laughs> and I was still fairly hands-off at this point. I was still kind of working in the, the food world, and um, we were still kind of just trudging along sort of with the idea of just having an orchard, and we weren't really sure where we wanted to go from there. And then eventually we started sort of thinking a little bigger picture, kind of, I guess, how many years after we planted the fruit trees? Uh, Several years. Yeah, several years after we planted the fruit trees, we somehow it clicked that I wanted to do flowers. And then that was coinciding with a lot of volunteer work I was doing for prairie restoration. And so... Then the rest of the land, we kind of set aside, okay, this this segment is for flowers and these chunks are for, these are going to be hands-off. We're just going to work on restoring these, allowing these to be native habitat. And then once we made some of those decisions, everything else just kind of fell into place in terms of what we needed to do with those spots, just based on what the end goal was. And we do have a few sections of the property that are a little tricky. Either they stay waterlogged 
or they're just kind of in between other sections of land. And so we don't really know quite what we're going to do with them. And maybe the answer is nothing, but yeah. So it's been a pretty long process. I know we're getting really wordy here, but it's been a pretty long process since we moved in to kind of where we are today, where things are starting to feel kind of flushed out. Yeah. I guess it's a, what you're seeing is the the tension between having to work for money and not having time and yeah. not having a pile of money to throw at the project from the very beginning, you know? And also the tension between wanting to develop the land into a farm oh, and yeah. also kind of Im- improve it and create habitat for wild animals and also leave it as a prairie. So, right. right. So well, trying to combine all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's uh, several things in that. I mean, first of all, 10 acres seems like a lot of land and it is at the same time. You guys want to do so much on that 10 acres that you really got to, like you said, really negotiate where you're going to be laying everything out. Yeah, Um, In terms of farms, 10 acres isn't that much really, mm -hmm. but, but for, I think for regenerative agriculture, it's, it's a bit large. Um, Yeah. You know, it's medium to large, I suppose. But there are some really large regenerative ag farms in comparison to us. Uh, some people that are really inspirational to me are doing things at a really large scale. Um, uh, I, Mark Shepard is a guy that comes to mind. He's a, a, a really uh, a talented uh, regenerative ag um, guy in the Midwest who, who does some really cool things. Okay. Well, and in terms of Texas, 10 acres is very small too. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm talk, not thinking about all the big ranches, of course, but um, uh, yeah, just put what you're doing and thinking about that in, in that mm-hmm. kind of, that context. So mm-hmm. um, something, yeah, you did also brought up was talking about working uh, for a living to, to sustain mm-hmm. this. Um, and I do want to touch on that because I don't know if, how many other young farmers that we see, you know, on these pretty Instagram pages, what that dynamic is like, like, is your situation common for young farmers or um, is it seem kind of an anomaly? And how did you guys reach that decision to continue one person with a, you know, corporate kind of job? Yeah, I think it's common for a lot of farmers. You know, we, we talk to, we've talked to other farmers and they have day jobs. You know, you look on, you look on farming forums and a lot of people do have day jobs. Um, or, you know, one person works off farm, the other person maintains the farm. Um, so I think it's not too uncommon. Um, it's not what we want to do long-term, but it's, it's kind of what we have to do until the farm is producing enough of an income stream to pay the mortgage. Right. Right. That kind of thing. And it was an easy decision for me to leave my job. I was, I was making, you know, barely what's considered a living wage in Austin. And, you know, Dan was the one bringing in a majority of the income and the division of labor on the farm or kind of follows the division of interests. You know, I'm, I'm the flower girl and he's the fruit guy. And so the, the flowers are going to be bringing in money much more sooner. So it only made sense for both of those reasons for me to leave my job first. So. Yeah. And, and flowers are, um, a really high uh, return on investment agricultural mm-hmm. product. So that seemed to offer a better possibility of uh, sort of getting the ball rolling, you know, getting our, our foot into the agricultural world to, to start paying the bills with, with farming. Okay. So, so flowers seemed like it was better than starting like produce instead of, you know. Yeah. I think those are pretty low margin in general. Um, and there are a lot of, 
sorry, there are a lot of really talented people in Austin already, you know, growing beautiful vegetables. So yeah. we have a garden for ourselves, which we recently expanded to be three times, four times bigger. Yeah. It's huge. It's like, it's going to be 1100 square feet of growing space. And maybe if the farmer's market allows us, we might sell excess at the market, but we, we didn't really want to focus on vegetables, you know. And I could totally see us growing niche items there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, some specialty vegetables, perhaps. But, uh, you know, we don't want to stomp on other farmers' toes because the market's already pretty crowded. So we don't need to right. go in there and start selling the same thing that everyone else is selling right now. I also just don't see myself as a vegetable farmer. That's not... You know, I want to. I want to grow flowers. So, right, right. <laughs> my interests don't lie in veg being a vegetable farmer. So, well, I guess let's talk. Let's talk about the flowers then. Um, how did you, I guess, get this the farm situated for your flowers, and what mm -hmm. kind of varieties did you start off uh, sowing? And yeah, I guess kind of get the ball rolling with that process. So the first step was to decide where to put the flowers. And we we picked a swath of land that was fairly close to the house since it's, you know, I'm out, I go to the flower field multiple times a day and we didn't want to be walking. You know, we, we were trying to consider. Um, Ergonomics, if you like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we wanted something, you know, with close proximity to the house or proximity to where we were going to be storing the flowers and processing the flowers. So the first step was just decide where to put the field and then the second step was decide how to design it and we we've already realized we made a mistake in our design mm -hmm. <laughs> so working with the heavy clay we decided to do raised beds like permanent you know in, mm -hmm. in quote, permanent raised beds there's no frame to them but they are anywhere from a foot to a couple feet raised up off the ground to allow for drainage. But we realized we oriented them the wrong way. We should have put them uh, with the length of the bed along the, the slope because we have some drainage uh, because the right. whole property kind of slopes and the water kind of gets collected on the broad side of the bed and then it just sits there and gets kind of stagnant so yeah so now we are uh you know doing little micro adjustments <laughs> to fix that anymore <laughs> so considering the huge amount of rain we've had since september i'm sure it's been raining there almost yeah. on top since yeah it's it's yeah. pretty still muddy here so yeah it's finally starting to dry up here but we've had some fungal issues on with some of our flower beds because of the extreme rain yeah so but, I've been doing some night digging after work. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, so we did an initial till. We rented a bulldozer, and Dan operated that, and we did our one-and-done till. We don't, we don't till. And then we manual labor with the shovel and thematic axes. We broke up the big clods of clay and shaped them into a bed and put down compost and cover crops and that kind of sat fallow for a few months. And then we started off with all of the really easy flowers that people in the area tend to grow sunflowers and zinnias and cosmos. And I tried to do some of the natives. Um, I tried with rubecchia. I tried some echinacea and 
those were all just flops last hmm. year. Okay. And we didn't sell anything last year either, which goes against every word of advice I have since read. (laughs) (laughs) I was working and I was uncomfortable with the idea of, I don't know, trying to find a market to sell our flowers at not knowing if we would be able to fulfill orders. And I, I preferred to take a financial loss just to practice. And I I believe Dan was kind of with me on that, but I'm on a lot of flower growing forums and people in their first year always ask for advice and everyone's like, don't give your flowers away for free. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> I made a lot of really good friends, but <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it for last year. You know, we, yeah, we built a bunch of raised beds, planted a bunch of practice crops. Um, We've I mean, we been, grew hundreds of flowers, like thousands yeah. of flowers. It wasn't a small amount. But. Yeah. We've been learning a lot, you know, uh, about what works in our soil mm-hmm. with our climate, that kind of thing. And that's, you know, that's the sort of thing you can't easily get just from poking around on the Internet. It's, it's based on local knowledge, which, right. you know, I guess maybe the fastest way to get it would be to go find some old gardeners in the area. But, uh, <laughs> We're doing it the hard way. <laughs> and you, there are flower growing programs online where you get access to videos and um, mentors, and they're very costly. Even the cheapest ones are very costly. So, right. what we spent last year on seeds and irrigation and fertilizer probably was equal to what those courses cost, but they didn't contain like the local specialized knowledge that we need to know about growing specific plants in our area with our specific soil and climate. So. Right, right, right. And then once you start dealing with the issues particular to your area, there is a lot of information available on the internet. You know, what do you do about this pest insect or mm-hmm. this fungal disease or whatever? Mm-hmm. Right. Now, so are you guys starting everything in flats and seed trays or in transplanting, or is it direct sowing? I start a lot in trays. Um, I do like 72 and 128 trays. I start a lot that way. I feel like it really allows me to get a jump on the season. So you can start your trays, you know, anywhere from four to eight weeks ahead of your last frost indoors and so as soon as that last frost date you know rolls around or before if you want yeah. to take examples, <laughs> like, like we always do you know that plant is already you know six weeks older than if you had just transplanted it or excuse me direct seeded it in the ground right and then it allows you to flip beds faster too so if you know okay i'm going to be done harvesting this bed in six weeks you can you can have some trays, you know, coming in in the lineup behind it. Right. There are some things that direct seed very easily, though, like sunflowers and zinnias. And there are some things that just grow so rapidly in a tray, like cosmos, that a lot of people direct seed those. Okay. So, yeah, you seed them in trays? Or? No, they direct. I, I seed cosmos in trays just because right. I... Um, we have a lot of little pests, you know, we have a lot of grasshoppers and so they tend to eat seedlings. And so that's another reason I like to start things in trays is because they're already, you know, three, four inches tall when I put them out and 
if a grasshopper munches on the leaves, it's less likely to kill it than it would a seedling. But right. I start Cosmos and trays, but a lot of people direct seed them just because they grow so rapidly. I would say I direct seed like 90%. I mean, excuse me, I tray up 90% <laughs> of what I grow. <laughs> right. No, that makes sense. Uh, it definitely makes sense, especially what you said about having the plants have that head start for pests and mm -hmm. because of, you know, the the seasons too. Mm -hmm. um, so on that note, if you're switching out plants, I mean, just theoretically every six to eight weeks, um, mm -hmm. how are you, are you growing through most of the seasons and even into winter? Or, I mean, since you really kind of got this started last year, are you still kind of experimenting? So just to clarify, I'm not flipping a bed every six to eight weeks. Um, that was just an example of how long oh, okay. you start okay. a tray ahead of time inside. I don't really have any numbers on like the average length of time a, a bed is, you know, has a plant growing to maturity in it before it's flipped. Maybe, I don't know, two to three months, I would guess. Probably okay. longer than that, three to four months. But our growing season usually ends around the first frost, so Thanksgiving, even though it was a little early this year. And then it usually starts um, like mid-February. So, Yeah, this year it probably started more like last week or so. We were scrambling a bit in late February for uh, frost yeah. to uh, save some of the flowers. Right. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> we don't have hoop houses, so we um, we're we're subject to the weather. You know, everything we have is field grown. So, other than some low tunnels and some frost cloths, frost cloths, we don't really have too many tools at our disposable disposal for protecting plants midwinter. So, it'd be nice to be able to grow year round here, and maybe we will be able to one day, but. Right. For now, we have to take like that two months, two to three month break just to, you know. Well, you guys need a rest too, so. <laughs> yeah, although at the end of winter, I was itching to get outside, you know. <laughs> you know there's so much to do and you're like, okay, I need to, I need to start doing something. And Yeah. But I'm also pretty good at being a sloth, so. <laughs> I like control from being lazy. <laughs> so how does... Uh, how does everything fare? You know, you said you're not using any tunnels or anything like that. How does anything, everything fare with like our extreme heat that we have and um, any potential hailstorms and that sort of thing? I think hail would just be a loss for us. Yeah. We don't get that much. I mean, since we've been here, uh, we've been at this house for like seven years seven. and we haven't had any hail to speak of here, mm -hmm. but North Austin gets a fair bit. So for whatever reason, we're, we, we would be, I mean, maybe it's just freak luck, but uh, we don't seem to get the hail so much. We tend to get torrential rain instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hail, so, hail would be a loss for us, yeah. you know. Um, now we don't, right now we don't have any low tunnels, but we probably will build some, you know, we'll bend some hoops and uh, get some plastic or frost cloth for them. Uh, and that could probably help. Uh, help protect against hail, but yeah, th that'll have to have, wait until later this year. So we're running right. Up, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think we would have any kind of plastic or frost cloth up during a hailstorm. You know, I feel like those typically occur spring through fall. So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think we would be able to protect. Yeah, like our plant. scramble to put it up. I time. mean, maybe, but I, 
maybe I'm mistaken, but I feel like hailstorms are kind of unpredictable yeah, and they just yeah. So, but in terms of the extreme heat, I know some farms actually take about a month off in the hottest part of the year and just, you know, they just stop irrigating and they just are like, okay, we're not going to sell anything during this month just to, you know, save on water from irrigation and to also just, you know, not be putting out perhaps lower quality flowers. But there are a lot of flowers like zinnias, for example, that really oh, yeah. do love the heat. And, you know, our clay is a mixed blessing. It holds onto water really well. So we can irrigate and the water, you know, the, the water can sink in and it can keep the soil fairly moist. So in the summer, we don't have to irrigate every day even. And we mulch a lot in the summer. You know, I think mulching is key. So I uh, I dubbed myself the leaf lady. This I saw <laughs> that. I saw that. <laughs> my goal is to keep moving forward with that, especially in the especially in the summer. You know, I'm a big advocate for mulch, and one of the benefits is just water retention. So we right. get uh, we get bags of leaves dropped off from a landscaping company. Okay. In town, so right now we have a gigantic pile of leaf bags out front that we need awesome. to do. Awesome. So we're using that for the perennials. We're using that just to to throw into the swales when we don't need it for mulch or mm -hmm. for filling pads or anything like that. Um, and then eventually that'll break down and turn into soil. Yeah. Awesome. And you know, despite uh, having the irrigate in the summer, we recently got a um, letter. Was it a letter or an email? We got a letter from our water co-op saying that our water use even in the summer was at or below the average household in our area. So oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was going to be off, you know, off the charts. <laughs> and so, you know, so just because you have a farm and you're irrigating, you know, it doesn't mean you have to use a lot of water. So and we're, we're putting a lot of thought into water uh, management, you know, with the swales, for example, we, we also dug a pond when we prepared the flower field, we will add some more ponds and, a long-term project is to add uh, a number of cisterns uh, okay. along the top of the hill for excess water from the ponds. Uh, right. We'll have some kind of um, buffer, some kind of water capacitance for the midsummer when, when we, you know, need a lot more. Okay. Yeah. So I want to go back to your prairie talk. Um, so do you want to incorporate more native and prairie wildflowers into, into your, uh, what you're selling at the farmer's markets and your bouquets and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe a little bit of background on, you said you did prairie restoration work too, like maybe how you're incorporating that into what you, your future goals are with, with the prairies at your uh, farm. Yeah. So I've been doing volunteer work for an organization in Austin called the water quality protection lands. And their goal is to increase the quality and the quantity of the water going into the Edwards Aquifer. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the volunteer events that I lead or am a participant in um, are um, the events are like seed collecting events. So we're out there harvesting native grasses and wildflowers and it sort of has exposed me to all different kinds of wildflowers that you typically don't see on the roadside because a lot of these are 
you know, old growth prairies or they're really protected properties. And so that actually was one of the things that kind of put into my mind this idea of using native wildflowers in our cut flowers. And there are a lot of cut there are a lot of wildflowers that are not good candidates for cut flowers. And so we would never sell anything that doesn't meet our standards. So, you know, you want a cut flower to have a roughly seven day base life, but there are a lot of really good candidates for that, you know, echinacea, so purple coneflower or Monarda, basket flowers, coreopsis. Um, yeah. Lysianthus. We, which, uh, yeah. Um, it's a native, a native Lysianthus. Eustoma, Eustoma <laughs> yeah, genus, yeah. But the floral industry name is Lysianthus, oh, and it's yeah. Interesting. But yeah, so Texas bluebells, what else? Eryngium, things like that. And the idea kind of um, sort of goes back to what Dan said in the beginning of our chat about sort of being kind of hands off or quote lazy farmers. <laughs> There are a multitude of benefits to these natives. A lot of them are perennials. They already like our soil, so we won't need to amend tremendously or their low water use. But they're also, you know, kind of lazy and they just do their own thing while we attend to things that might be a little more hands on. But I also want to sort of incorporate an education aspect on a future website or even at the farmer's market. And I really want to use these native wildflowers as opportunities to, you know, just teach, um, teach our customers and just teach the general public about the benefits of some of these flowers. You know, they are good for this pollinator or that pollinator, you know, things like that. And so I also have a goal that for our, we haven't worked out the uh, fine details on this, but maybe for our large mixed bouquets that contain mostly the natives, we would donate X amount of dollars or a certain percent of the profits to various prairie restoration projects around Texas. So right. we haven't worked out the details on that, but you know, it's kind of my passion project on the farm. So if I, if I could get away with growing all natives as cut flowers, I think I would. I just don't know. First of all, I don't know if there's a market for it at all. But, you know, I think the natives give a real sense of terroir, too. You know, they give folks a sense of place. And I think that I think that might really appeal to people. So, yeah. No, especially, especially in the market you are in. I think Austin mm -hmm. definitely has uh, that desire. Uh, to see that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. I mean, especially people you're marketing to, and maybe you're selling your bouquets to, you know, little local restaurants to put on their tables, mm -hmm. like with, you know, their, their bison burger sort of thing. You yeah. know, um, that definitely is a market for you guys. And I'm like you, I would love to see more education on prairies um, and our native ecosystems, because I mean, as you guys have seen, Austin is just expanding and expanding mm -hmm. further as yeah. it, you know, Houston is just is doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. All of these, you know, once open fields and forests and things are being converted into, you know, subdivisions before our eyes. So, right. um, yeah. <laughs> we, um, yeah we, we, can, can, we can, 
You can. Or you say the same thing. We, we can see it out on the living room window. They're building a subdivision yeah. just over there. Oh, my. <laughs> I'm like, at least two, two of, I don't know, how many direct, I don't even want to think about it, but yeah. it's, gonna, it's coming for us. We're, we're going to be an urban farm in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that'll be good. People will be driving by, popping by to get their bouquets to take home. Right. You know? I have to repeat the mind like urban farm in my head a couple of times a day and somehow it allows me to sort of come to you know grips with reality of the encroachment but right yeah because I see <laughs> pictures of your your farm on Instagram and you know it looks like in certain aspects it looks like it's you know you're in the country but when you say Austin mm-hmm. I know where you guys are at I know that area is definitely mm-hmm. expanding so yeah yeah we've got a, a long narrow property so you can take pictures in some directions and it looks like the land goes off a long ways but then the other way you know you see uh you see our neighbors working on their uh their trucks they have a, <laughs> they have a dirt chipping business basically they have these big 18 wheelers oh, wow. and they're always over there you know, using their impact uh, urban farm hammers. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so that's another task of ours to put up some nice uh vegetative screens to yeah. walk the view and the noise <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> right, right. We're working on that. So, so another um, one of your big uh, things on the farm is the compost tea. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about that? I mean, I'm familiar with it, but maybe somebody else isn't very familiar um, um, what your setup like. And, and you guys are selling that too, right? We yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, we started making compost tea for ourselves a uh, number of years ago and have had pretty good success with it. Uh, the plants really do seem to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we are making aerated compost tea. Uh, there, people also make a non-aerated compost tea. This basically means you take some amount of compost and steep it in water and you either aerate it or you don't. Uh, there are, there seem to be a lot more advocates for aerated compost tea. Uh, there's a woman named Elaine Ingham. With, I think she's with the University of Washington, mm-hmm. um, who is a soil scientist or a soil microbiologist who uh, talks a lot about the benefits of compost and compost tea. And predominantly, these are beneficial because of the microorganisms in, in the tea and in the compost. Um, and the, the, the tea is sort of a super concentrated liquid filled with soil compost microorganisms right which facilitate the nutrient transfer between the soil and the plants because plants are not all that good at sucking up soluble nutrients from the soil they need some help from uh from the fungal mycorrhizae uh they need help from bacteria to basically solubilize the nutrients and trade with the, the plants for, um, for carbohydrates. So I'll give you some zinc or something like that, something that the plant cannot solubilize in return for carbohydrates coming out of the plant roots. Right. Um, so then the compost tea can be used as an inoculant for the soil to, to reintroduce soil microorganisms that might have been depleted from the soil because of poor management practices, or they can act as competition against pathogens on the leaf surfaces of plants. Okay. 
Um, now, I think it's not necessarily a magic bullet. You know, it's not going to cure everything. And you probably if you have really healthy soil, you don't need it all that much. It might be, you know, there are some other microbial preparations. If you start digging into Korean natural farming, that's kind of a, uh, it's, it's kind of like biodynamics with a little bit less woo. Okay. <laughs> um, and they talk about all of these different microbial preparations and things for for applying to plant services and some of those it seems like would be you know i'm experimenting with that but not really deep into it yet but it seems like a lot of those would be really good for uh, uh preventing pathogens from from uh, affecting the plants uh but but compost tea you know has multiple benefits and it can be made in a number of different ways and and i think this is one of the confusing things about it is that it, that it, um it really is dependent upon the source material and on the brewing process to you know that that really is what determines the quality of the finished product uh, so you can end up with compost tea that's bad for your plants if you do it wrong right uh, or you know it could be pretty beneficial for your plants uh so the process we use is an aerobic process and a homemade brewer, which uses a large aquarium pump to bubble air through the water while compost is uh, steeped in the, in the liquid. And then we feed it some kind of carbohydrate. Okay. Uh, lately we've been feeding it or uh, uh, feeding the microbes, feeding them uh, oat flour, okay. which, which is a bit of a slower acting uh, carbohydrate source. So, you know, more complex chains, so they don't cause the population to spike as quickly. Um, last thing I guess is we, <laughs> I know I'm <laughs> rambling a bit. Uh, we, we, we look at the compost tea, mm-hmm. uh, using a microscope to ensure that it's got roughly the right proportion of bacteria to fungi and roughly the right kind of bacteria. Uh, I'm not identifying bacteria when I do that. Uh, but you can you generally you know what the anaerobic bacteria and the aerobic bacteria look like, so okay. that can help to determine the quality of the tea. Okay. And how is that going over at the markets that you're selling to? We sold about so last Saturday was our first market ever. And oh, okay. We sold roughly half of what we brought, and a lot of folks knew exactly what it was. I don't think there were any impulse purchases. I think people yeah. knew that we had it or they saw the sign and were like, we want compost tea. Yeah. We or they were like, mm-hmm. can I drink this? Is this- yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of education opportunities as well. So a lot of people just didn't know what it was and thought that it was tea for humans. And so, you know, that we need to do some, you know, marketing on it and, you know, maybe some education for it. But, you know, it, it went pretty, it went better than we both expected. You know, we weren't sure how people were going to respond to it. Part of the reason we're selling it right now is because we, we expect some fluctuations in the flower production as we're kind of getting our feet. Uh, and at least until midsummer, when a lot of pretty reliable plants are going to be coming online. So we want something. We wanted to get our foot in the door at the market. And uh, this is a, a nice way to actually always have something to sell. Right. right. So if people respond to it, we'll keep selling it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we're also not married to the idea of selling it. <laughs> right. Well, what, what kind of, uh, I mean, are you selling a gallon jug of this or what kind of volume are you selling? 
gallons. Yeah. And we, we may start selling half gallons because a few people were, were uh, mm-hmm. not so sure about buying a whole gallon of it. You know, a half gallon lowers the price a little bit and it becomes more of an impulse purchase. So they can add it on to a bouquet or something. Right. right. Yeah. And we might do some promotions, you know, buy X number of dollars in flowers, get a gallon for half off or, you know, we have some ideas on ways to sort of promote it. But we also just kind of want to see how it, you know, how demand might naturally build for it. So we shall see. But you know what? It takes up a lot of space in the uh, in the farm car. So eventually <laughs> <laughs> that might have to give over to, uh, we might have to give that space over to flowers. Something more lucrative exactly. like flowers. Yeah. Now, are you, you said last year you were giving away a lot of your flowers. Had you tried to <laughs> sell them before you started this market at all? No. Mm-mm. So other avenues for sale might be restaurant buckets, like you mentioned earlier. Or wholesalers or CSAs. We really want to try and develop a CSA program this summer. We just kind of we kind of wanted to tiptoe into selling and we wanted to just choose one one avenue initially. And then I guess we didn't feel like we had the volume to do any of those other Exactly. Uh, I don't think we have the volume currently to to sell to more than one avenue. But okay. we do need to develop something because if we're only selling one day a week, that really limits the number of stems you can sell because you can't harvest something on a Monday and expect to sell it on a Saturday and then right. your guests take it home and then have a seven-day base life. So right. typically most flower growers have some sort of midweek opportunity to offload flowers, and that's kind of where we want our CSA in the summer to come into play. Okay. And we might also try and reach out to – one or two or three restaurants and slowly work up to those larger volumes. And what about like weddings or parties and that sort of thing? Is that on your agenda? We, so I'm not a florist by trade and I would, I'm, I'm just going to say this now that I'm never going to do <laughs> corsages <laughs> and bridal bouquets. Who knows? But the likelihood of that happening, I believe, is very slim. But there is, there's still an opportunity to sell for people who are doing, especially do-it-yourself weddings. And a lot of yeah. people sell do-it-yourself bridal buckets. And typically, it's kind of farmer's choice. And sometimes you can give the brides, you know, they can exclude a couple of colors or they can exclude a couple of flowers. But for the most part... It's your opportunity to give them the best of what you have. And you can kind of mix higher end with fillers. And so I, I could see us doing that, but I don't, I don't foresee myself ever doing any of the design work. Okay. It's so stressful too. Yeah. It sounds like you would have to, you'd almost have to outsource or hire someone yeah. specifically for that purpose, probably. Right. You know, it's, it's not my skill set. So I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someday I'll take a design course or something. Yeah. Um, I would transition just a little bit. Um, You talk, we were talking about, you know, you guys being pretty much starting to be an urban farm. Um, So what kind of, do you guys have any wildlife problems uh, like deer or coyotes or wild pigs or anything like that? No pigs, fortunately, but Mm -hmm. uh, deer do like to, to come through. Uh, our, 
on our neighbor's land and they'll visit our land and strip the bark off of our tasty young trees <laughs> where we had to put up uh, an emergency fence around the flower field last summer, which we, oh my, yeah, that was, that was fun. But we put, put up a really sturdy, really tall deer fence and it seems to work. Yeah. We actually thought we were going to sell some flowers in the fall. We were heading towards a really good path of selling flowers. And then the deer came and ate everything. Oh my God. Struggled. Well, Dan worked very hard for like three weeks to put up a deer fence in August. And we got some flowers back in the ground and then the frost came early. So we had like a thousand sunflowers that we lost that I was intending on selling. But anyway, back to the the wildlife. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, then like your standard array of uh, pest insects. Yeah. Birds that like to come and peck at a piece of fruit a few times and then fly off. That kind of thing. Um, but then a lot of beneficial wildlife too, um, or just, you know, I guess neutral wildlife. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> and they all have yeah, they all a have, role in ecosystem. Yeah. They fill a niche somehow. So we have uh, a lot of different birds there. Uh, so we have some ponds where we see herons and ducks, um, egrets, uh, we have cottontails out here, roadrunners, quail, a lot of stuff like that, kind of prairie species. Right. That's cool. You guys have quail. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that quail are a good indicator species of a healthy prairie. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very, uh, a lot of the ranchers manage for quail. So right. that's, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't see them often. I think Dan sees them more than I do. But. Yeah. You'll startle them out of, uh, out of the grass and just shoot off like a, mm-hmm. like a bullet. Right, right. We haven't had issues with coyotes in a while, but we haven't had any fowl in a while. And we're about to get some ducks and chickens. And so the coyotes might come back again, but they were picking off our chickens one by one. But And you guys had guineas too, right? Yeah, we do have guineas. Okay. okay. I love them. Yeah, they look cool. <laughs> they, um, you know, when we first got them, I was fairly neutral about them. Like these weird birds are kind of fun looking. <laughs> and, but you know, they have a soft spot in my heart for them now. Yeah, they're pretty endearing. You know, they're kind of weird looking, but they're really cute. Too, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're really dumb. Uh, they're, but they're, they're great pest control. Um, they, uh, you, you know, you can eat the eggs, but yeah. you have to track down the nests. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And actually, that can be a danger. They, uh, they'll run off and lay a clutch of eggs and then raise a whole bunch of babies and then they're terrible moms so you just end up with a bunch of dead guinea keats around which is really sad to see oh my goodness so, so now we hunt down the nests and we just we'll get like 30 eggs at once <laughs> <laughs> we just eat a bunch of guinea eggs um they tend to be very skittish and so they watch the sky more and they'll they'll mm-hmm. you know they'll make alarm calls when they see a hawk or something that resembles a hawk and so it's good at alerting other fowl that you have to take cover. And I've actually seen the guineas charge a coyote before. Oh, wow. So they, I don't know if they're just very brave or very stupid. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know. That sounds very silly, maybe dumb. Say, but I've, I've seen, you know, about 15 guineas charge after a coyote before and it, it worked. So <laughs> good for them. <laughs> Strength in numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you guys have some cute little puppies, too. We do. We have three dogs. We have um, two two mixes, like an Aussie mix and a 
pit bull mix and we have an unlikely farm dog. He's a Pomeranian, but he is, he's all farm dog. You know, he's, he's our Instagram star. He's our Instagram star. But yeah, they're, they're, they're great. I think one of the reasons we haven't really seen too many um, coyotes in a while is I think just the scent of the dogs on the property kind of keeps some of those predator type animals away. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, well, I guess maybe you guys want to talk about your, as you kind of talked about your overall goals with the farm, but is there anything else you'd like to share a little bit about where you maybe you want to see yourselves in five or 10 years? Yeah. Um, you start. Yeah. So um, my, my long-term goals are to develop the orchards into a, a perennial polyculture. So uh, mixed planting of, of directly productive crops and then support crops that, mm-hmm. you know, help the other trees or attract beneficial wildlife for, or, you know, ecosystem services, which sounds really sterile. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, birds come in and eat the pest insects and they poop and uh, all, all these different things. So, um, you know, sort of creating a designed ecosystem to support the output of crops that we are interested in, uh, like the fruit trees and the nut trees, things like that. Uh, and uh, flowers. We, we have... Uh, We've started to plant some perennial cut flower crops out in the orchards interspersed with the trees. Um, things that are shrubbier, like Baptisia or oh, yeah. things that might have like a, you know, um, an accent facing that might just not, you, you wouldn't be able to plant very many of them in a traditional flower bed. So we put those kinds of things interspaced <laughs> with the fruit trees in the orchard. So. Yeah, so eventually there'll be understory crops, and we'll you know we uh, we'll have a lot of native flowering trees out there, things like that. And you want to leave your job? Yes, and I would like to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you know I feel like this is something that something beneficial for the world. You know, it is uh, it is building soil, building ecosystems. It is it, uh, it's sequestering carbon. Uh, yeah. One of the biggest ways, that's really one of the only ways I've heard of to sequester carbon. Uh, people talk about whiz-bang new technology to to sequester carbon, but all of that is really uh, inter- or, you know, it's, it's money intensive. Uh, you know, yeah. There's some companies trying to do it that are starting really small, and there's almost no way, I think, that they'll be able to make much of a difference. But I think if, if farmers would institute some of these, you know, regenerative ag systems, so, you know, rotate, uh, holistically managed rotational grazing can fix a lot of carbon in the soil, that kind of thing. I think, I think we could offset some of it. We could make some kind of difference and better the world in some way. And that's something I don't feel like I'm doing in my job. So I would love right. to be able to do this instead. No, that's a, that's a very worthy goal. And I mean, I'm kind of in a similar situation. I feel like almost in a position where I'm like, well, I don't even know what I know what my role is in this as a human living on the earth and being a consumer. Um, but, uh, you know, I have just a teeny tiny garden and what, what can I do to, um, to halt our (laughs) inevitable climate change issues. So. Yeah, totally. I mean, it can make you feel hopeless, right? Yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know what to do other than to try this, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love that you guys are doing that. I like, I don't see too many flower farmers. Um, you know, I've seen a few people selling things in their, you know, little suburban backyard at our farmer's market here and in, in, on the north side of Houston. Um, but nothing like to this kind of scale. Um, so it's good to see you guys doing this. Yeah, we have a, we have a lot of space, and we're making a really big push for the flowers. Um, one of one of my goals, you know, where I kind of see the flowers in five to ten years, is I would really like to start some sort of flower growers co-op in our area for for farmer support. You know, there there are other flower farms in our area, um, Grassdale and Prickly Pear and whatnot. But there there aren't that many flower growers in comparison to vegetable growers. And, right. you know, um, you can get such better prices on supplies if you're able to buy them in volume. And it would be really nice if we could all kind of get together and share some of the costs of these things or trade equipment or even just trade knowledge or, you know, labor or even just build just build a stronger sense of community among the flower growers just for marketing purposes and yeah. being kind of a united front and being advocates for the slow flower movement because <laughs> the flower industry is very, is very dirty, you know? Yeah. And so I think a lot of people don't realize how, um, how uh, poorly some of those workers are treated and what kind of chemicals are used and just the shipping materials involved. And so there is a, there is a movement for slow flowers. That is a thing, you know, I didn't, I didn't come up with that, but it's, it's only just now being on people's, um, you know, it's only just now registering with people as, as an issue. You know, I, I buy all of these other things local. Why am I not buying my flowers local? So, no, that's a very big point because that was the same thing. I read uh, Amy Stewart's, I think, yeah. Our Confidential yeah. a few years ago, and I was totally blown away because, yeah. it's like you said, I was interested in this local food and organic, and I had no idea, like, the depth of, of where our flowers came from. Right. And I fully recognize that flowers are not a necessity, and so sometimes I struggle with this this idea, you know, we're putting so much time and just resources into growing something that isn't consumable by humans. And why are we, <laughs> why are we doing this? Cause it's not really changing the world. But then I, I, you know, I, I remember that people need beauty in their lives and then the flowers that they turn to are typically not very worker or environment friendly. So then I'm then I'm okay with it. <laughs> internal struggles there. These are, these are guilt-free flowers. Guilt-free, guilt-free ethical flowers. But. And then, well, and then you feel safe that you can put them in your compost because if you put something yeah. that's been chemically treated in your compost, yeah. you don't want to be doing. It, and so. we we are complete other than compost tea. We're a no spray farm, so we don't we don't spray anything on our flowers that's even considered organic, like neem or copper or anything along those lines just because it doesn't really doesn't really jive with what we're trying to do so you can be extra happy about <laughs> your compost pile and actually you've, uh, you put a lot of effort into sourcing compostable wrapping for the flowers yeah so every every um 
everything that we use to package our flowers is completely home compostable. So. Oh, that's a good. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. No, no plastic here. So awesome. no stickers, no plastic. So. The only thing that we are currently using that's considered kind of single use is the, the gallon jug for our compost tea. But we're trying to encourage people to bring, bring it, back. it back and we'll reuse it after we sanitize it and they'll get a discount on a future gallon. So that's good. good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you guys have mentioned a few resources uh, along the way, but is there any um, other people or websites, blogs, books that you'd like to share for people who might be interested in um, starting something similar? Yeah, you start. I want to look at the title of this book. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my, my interests are, are tend towards more, you know, uh, perennial agriculture in sort of a permaculture framework. So there are a whole bunch of, permaculture books out there, uh, which are a lot of fun to read and maybe a little pie in the sky sometimes, but um, full of good information. Gaia's Garden, I thought, was a, was a really nice primer for, for uh, permaculture design. And then um, I mean, for, from there, there are all sorts. I, mean, I guess they're, they're the original books by Bill Mollison, things mm-hmm. like that. Mark Shepard has a really good book uh, called Restorative Agriculture, I believe. That um, is uh, is really well written and uh, pretty inspirational too. It's got a lot of good ideas. Okay, I, a lot of YouTube stuff too. Yeah, well, yeah, I know there's a lot of YouTubers out there. <laughs> so the first book I read on flower farming, I had to look up the woman's last name. So it's called The Flower Farmer by Lynn Bizinski. It sounds Polish, B-Y-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I, but it's The Flower Farmer. That book was pretty instrumental for us initially just on design. And it's sort of an organic approach to growing flowers, but it's, you know, we, we used it and we kind of merged it with some of the permaculture or regenerative agriculture ideas that Dan knew about. But I highly recommend The Flower Farmer. And I am a member or we're a member of the association of specially cut flower growers and it's an association that you have to you have to pay to be a member of but you have access to videos from previous conferences they've had and they have a very active facebook group that's private just for members and it's a wealth of information and i'm also a really big fan of the lady bird johnson uh wildflower plant database i've had database multiple times a week just yeah i do too and they have um, categories, so they even have a cut flower category, and so you can filter for flowers that are good cut flowers. And it was instrumental when I was compiling my list of possible flowers that I wanted to grow. I think another good point to bring up is that um, natural farming in general is really dependent upon the the climate and soil and so on in your area and the local agricultural universities will have mm-hmm. a lot of information to share about that. So Texas A&M has some mm-hmm. really great resources uh, mm-hmm. about growing pretty much anything that grows well in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Typically if you Google something, if you look for some sort of university extension PDF type, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you'll probably find pretty good information, even if it's not a local one, mm-hmm. you know, Penn state, for example, has a lot of info out there. So. Mm-hmm. 
Well, where can people, if they want to see you in person, where can they come to the farmer's market and where can they find you online and get in touch with you guys? So our Instagram is Cassiopeia Farm. That is C-A-S-S-I-O-P-E-I-A Farm. And then we have Facebook. That's Cassiopeia Farm ATX. And then we will be at the Sustainable Food Center downtown market every Saturday from 9 to 1. And that is at Republic Square. And anyone can email us at CassiopeiaFarm at gmail.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again for coming on. And it's been great to chat with you guys. Um, We get to Austin a couple times a year. So maybe I'll... uh, and we go we go um, camping at uh, McKinney Falls sometimes. Yeah. So I know it's in that that yeah. area. So a mile away from our farm. Oh, perfect! Then yeah. I'll have to give you guys a, yeah. a call and just, just a heads up. Yeah. yeah.